Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Bereavement, a touchy subject that too few dare talk about, even and sometimes especially within the walls of the church. Today's guest, Nancy Guthrie, shares some of her thoughts on the Christian's response to suffering and grief. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how you can download a free audio message from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin. Today we are privileged to have a special guest whose identity will be revealed in just a moment, but I want to take uh, your minds back to an event of roughly 12 months ago when regular listeners will remember that we conferred a singular great honor upon Mrs. Amy Bird when she joined the show and we actually elected her as an honorary guy. Well, only for the second time in recorded history are we going to do that today. Uh, We're delighted to uh, be welcoming to the program the uh, well-known writer, um, Nancy Guthrie. And before we interview her, we are going to call this meeting to order and elect Nancy as only the second honorary guy in history. Now, there have been objections to us doing this. Uh, It emerged as we were going through the very rigorous uh, investigative process. Uh, It has emerged that Nancy is teetotal, which is something of a a black mark when it comes to the, the election process. But then it was pointed out to me that Amy Bird's favourite drink is Miller Genuine Draft. (laughs) That is the equivalent of being teetotal, and therefore we've already set the precedent. So I'll call the meeting to order and uh, ask for uh, the appropriate motion. Uh, Carl, uh, I'd like to move that Nancy Guthrie be made an honorary guy. Do I hear a second? I second that. Discussion? None from me. Nope. Call for a vote. All those in favour say aye. 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 All those opposed say no. I declare the motion passed. Nancy, congratulations. You are the second honorary guy in the history of the world. You can go away and drink a celebratory Miller Genuine draft with Amy later. (laughs) And it was so Presbyterian. That's what I liked about it. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to uh, speak against the motion. <laughs> you can now. We can revisit at our next meeting. Or, or to raise my hand, you know, in regard to reasons <laughs> by which I might not fit for this. I, I can't be highly emotional. Right. I'm really not interested in watching sports. <laughs> you could call. You could call maybe for the formation of a study committee. Uh, to look yeah, into you know, it. And here's the other thing. I'm I'm really happy being a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I struggle with that I'm myself. You want girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I'm honored. I can tell that this feels to you as a great part of this. <laughs> to you. I don't want to, you know, spit in the face of honor. Uh, so, well, it, our, our, we, we felt good about making you an honorary guy, though, because you seem to have a sense of humor. <laughs> and you know, uh, we just thought that would be a, that's pretty a, much a their only fit. standard. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I must say, I do love to laugh. Well, there you go. Well, Nancy, in the the great American news tradition of moving from complete trivia to extremely serious <laughs> topics, um, one of the the many things that you do in your your Christian ministry, uh, and perhaps the thing which uh, is. 
that for which you're best known are the, the respite retreats that uh, you and your husband, David, have been doing for some years now. Uh, I wonder if you'd like to tell our listeners something about the origins of this idea and uh, what have been the highs and lows of, of putting on these retreats over the last few years. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm so well known for them. That's It's one of those mis, uh, ministries that is incredibly small, but at the same time, incredibly big and significant, at least, um, I believe. Um, David and I, my husband David and I, we have a son, Matt, who's in college. And we also had two children, a daughter, Hope, and a son, Gabriel, who each live six months. And so our experience of going through the loss of two children, as you might imagine, was very significant in our lives. And in many ways, it was my writing out of that experience, but probably in a deeper way, my searching the scriptures to make sense of that experience out of which my writing began. Um, that really significantly changed the course of, of my life and, and, and our lives, really. And so I did write a number of books out of our experience uh, with losing Hope and Gabriel, who, by the way, Gabe died uh, 13 years ago today. Mm. And um, so after I, I wrote these books, there were lots of people who would get in touch with us who were going through the loss of a child and began to do lots of just interacting with grieving people, either where I was speaking or people calling me or writing me. And one, one time about five years ago, this couple from Louisiana wrote me, they said, we're going to be in Nashville and we would love to get together with you and David and to talk about this. And so we met them at a restaurant, same restaurant I ate with you, Carl. I remember. You were here once in Nashville. Yeah. And when we left the rest, I mean, we had a really sweet time with them. And one thing that was David and I had begun to see, and it was so clear on that interaction, was the difference between when I interact with a grieving mother and when it's couple with couple. Because with grief, we all have an individual aspect to getting through the grief. But in something like losing a child, there's the family and the couple and the marriage. It has its own identity of how are we gonna get through this grief. And couples struggle to grieve individually and yet together. And they grieve differently. And you know, in the midst of so much pain to try to give each other grace, to grieve in a different way, to think a different way about it, all those things, it's just incredibly challenging. And so we were driving home from that dinner and I said to David, I wonder, if we could start a retreat for couples who have lost children. And we knew of a place we could do it. There's a fabulous retreat center owned by a ministry here in Nashville that's about a, a 45 minutes outside of Nashville. It's a 12 bedroom lodge out in the country. Nice. I was like, we could do it at the hiding place. And like on the way home, I kind of thought, here's what we do. We do this, do this, this. I got home and I went through my address book of all the people who had written me in the previous two years who had lost a child. And I did up a little brochure and I sent it to them. And within two weeks, our first retreat filled up. Wow. And so then we planned another one. And tomorrow we have our 18th respite retreat, which is amazing to us. So that means over the last five years, David and I have spent the weekend out in the country 
with, I didn't count it up, but 18 <laughs> times um, 11 couples, 22 people. We've also done a respite retreat in the UK. We did one UK this last year. We're going to do one in Australia oh, wow. next year. Um, and the weekends are, I don't know, sometimes when we tell people we do this, they kind of look at us like, are you crazy? And and in many ways, especially at this point, I mean, on the Thursday, the day before we go, there's a, a bit in which David and I look at each other and go, we're doing this again? <laughs> because, you know, we're headed out into the country with 11 couples who have so much pain. Yeah. And so we stand inside the retreat center and these couples walk in and they are weighted down with sorrow. And you know, some of them, one of them wants to be there and the other one doesn't. In fact, mm-hmm. the retreat, we have a guy walk in and go, I really don't want to be here. I mean, as mm-hmm. he should we're like, we get that, you know? I mean, David and I often talk about the fact if there was something like this when we lost a child, we never would have gone. Oh, wow. That would be weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And miserable. We won't like how they lead it. We don't like the other people. We don't want to talk about this with other people. So we mm-hmm. totally get that. And so the fact that people trust us and come from all over the country, even from outside the country, to come to the retreats amazes us. Uh, but it also, it speaks to the need and the desperation in a sense for help and the desire for godly help. You know, there's lots mm-hmm. of support groups for pe- people going through grief, but unless Christ is at the center, it's just empty coping. Yeah. Right. And so they're looking for something to, to how do they deal with even their frustration and perhaps anger toward God? Right. Um, and so they, they walk in the door, they're loaded down with grief. And so over the weekend, uh, we share their stories with each other. And honestly, by the time we finish that, every couple has shared about their child and their loss. They're already beginning to, to go from strangers to intimate friends. And they, they look across the room and they hear what someone else says about how what they've thought and felt. And they think, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who's felt that way, hmm. especially the dads, because women tend to more readily process their grief by talking with other women. But dads don't. Mm-hmm. And the men don't have many men friends that they can really talk to about their grief. Yeah, and so shame. they get there. They're the ones who generally don't want to come. And yet they get there and it is such a relief to them to see tears on another dad's yeah. face. Yeah. And to hear another dad just say, I miss my son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, we talked before we started going from that I love to laugh. And, and uh, you know, the other thing is it's, um, it's a sweet thing to get to share tears with people. And yeah. so we share a lot of tears over the weekend, but we also do laugh. I mean, some of these couples haven't laughed out loud since their child died. Yeah, Man. yeah. And by the time we get to Saturday night, they're comfortable enough with each other. And it's been a pretty rigorous emotional day. Um, they feel safe to laugh with each other. I mean, just so you know, I mean, couples who've lost a child, one of the reasons they don't want to laugh out loud in front of people who who haven't lost a child is they have a fear that you may think they're over it oh, wow. mm-hmm. when they're not over it yet. Mm-hmm. But worse than that, they have a fear that you may think they didn't really love their child if they could already be laughing. Oh, goodness. I've heard yeah. you talk before, Nancy, about how um, joy and sorrow can coexist yeah. And you never truly knew that until you had lost a child and, and been so overwhelmed with grief. That's something my husband says a lot, and it is so profoundly true. It's not something you anticipate. 
And, you know, I, I imagine many of your listeners, even if they're listening, they're, if they have lost a child, they're relating. If they haven't lost a child but know someone who has, they're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, how, how can I be a good friend as someone who's lost a child? And to be a friend to someone who's lost a child, to be a safe person, to both be willing to cry and laugh with that person so that you could laugh at, I mean, because sometimes in the midst of sorrow, you need a vacation from it. I mean, you just need a break and it feels really good to laugh. And if you've got someone you can do that with, that they, you know, one, won't think that you now you're fixed and over it. And number two, won't think it means that you didn't love your child. What a great friend. Yeah. So in, getting back to the weekend, so we do that on Saturday night. On Sunday morning is really a key time. As I talk through five statements of Jesus that help us to hear Jesus in the midst of our sorrow and the implications they have for couples who are grieving loss of a child, statements Jesus made, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, that I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Could you not watch with me one hour? And to know that Jesus understands what it's like to be overwhelmed with grief. Yeah. And that he also understands the loneliness of grief. So because so many of these couples feel like all their friends ran and disappeared, which is exactly Jesus understands that. Yeah. Um, to hear Jesus say uh, when he, the disciples wanted to know um about the man who was born blind from birth. And you remember their question, who yeah. said? They're looking at, you know, who do we blame for this? Why did this happen? And Jesus doesn't answer with an answer to why it happens. He answers to his purpose in it, which is that the work of God might be displayed in your life. And so to talk to them about how God wants to put his glory on display in their life, not through the miraculous healing that they had prayed for, for their child, but that actually God would be doing a work in them of healing and restored joy and peace and acceptance and uh, that he would be, that his glory at work in their character and the interior of their lives would radiate that the world would see it. But probably the most significant statement in that setting is when I talk about Jesus' statement to John when he was on the island of Patmos and Jesus says to John, don't be afraid. Uh, I'm the first and the last. I was, I died. I'm, I'm living forevermore. But then he says this. He says, I hold the keys to death and Hades or death and the grave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these couples are sitting in the room and they have in their pockets the key to their room and this little lodge. And I ask them, um, so what does it mean that you hold the keys to your room? It, it means that you control access. Nobody goes through that door unless you open that door. And Jesus is saying, I hold the keys to death. And the implications of that is, you know, it's one thing to say that when you're speaking to a big room and, you know, there are lots of different needs. I tell you what, on that Sunday morning when we sit and we say that to that circle of 24 people and there are couples who's, you know, sons, hung themselves in their dorm room or drowned in the bathtub or overdosed on drugs or died before they were born or killed were killed by a drunk driver and to suggest that Jesus is the one who opened that door. 
and that their child lived exactly the number of days that he intended. And it didn't catch him by accident, by surprise. It, and even though to them, it seems like their child died way too soon, they really died on, right on time. But there's also the comfort in that, that though Jesus is the one who opens the door, he's the one who's on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. So we don't surrender our children to an unknowing, uncaring nothingness. Right. And, um, you know, those of us in the Reformed faith, we've given some thought to the sovereignty of God. Right. But we have people come to our retreats from all kinds of backgrounds and from no faith. Yeah. And to grapple with the sovereignty of God in context with the death of their child is very significant. Yeah. And... You know, I, I think it's grappling with that for me is is really what birthed so much of my pursuit of knowing God in the scriptures. Um, mm-hmm. You know, after the death of my children, just to try to understand, okay, I'm trying to make sense of this. Yeah. Um, you know, are were we the victim of genetic odds two times? Or... Or were you in charge of this, God? You know, it's not random. Did you pick us out for this and say, oh, I think they can handle it? You know, because people would say to us, you know, God knew that you would be faithful, so he picked you out for this. <laughs> that didn't seem quite right either. Right, right. And so, you know, that just sent us to the scriptures to try to understand in a deeper way and to understand God's sovereign providence in this world and his. The fact that nothing happens to me, um, that it hasn't passed through his sovereign hands, but that I do live in a world where there are other forces at work, and yet nothing happens that he is not in control of. And, you know, to reckon with those things, it's not simplistic. And, you know, it's challenging for us if we haven't had an experience like this to try to figure out and then even more how to articulate. Yeah, Yeah, you know... in, some in, people, so for some people, and certainly for the couples who come to this retreat, it's not just a theological issue. Right. It's a personal issue. Yeah. And, in, and in hearing that, one of the things that goes through my mind, Nancy, is that um, good theology has to have tender care attached to it. And tender care has to have good theology attached to it. Mm. Uh, the one without the other um, will kind of leave us in, yeah, in, that's in, really in a bad true. state. You know, because I often feel at these retreats, that I am saying something that maybe their pastor or someone else has said to them and they couldn't receive it from him because there was a sense in which they thought, you don't get it. You haven't been there. And I, I say, I I mean, it's a hard thing to say your child died right on time, Mm -hmm. but I guess that kind of points to why David and I do this in that um, we feel like we're stewards. All of us are stewards of what God's entrusted to us. And God entrusts to many people many different things. And sometimes we love, you know, the gifts that God has entrusted to us. And, uh, you know, other times God entrusts something to us that we wouldn't have chosen. And God has entrusted to me and David the loss of two children. And we're just trying to be good stewards of that. And so, you know, there's a part of us that goes, why do we keep doing this? Because... It's a heavy weight. You know, I'm feeling that weight today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
as I head into this weekend and I I go over, I've got a sheet with pictures of all the people who are coming and the details about their loss. And I've got the sheets they sent me telling us what they're struggling with. And, you know, we feel the way, we feel mostly the weight of our inadequacy because David and I can't fix this. And, and, you know, we don't, we don't have all of the answers by any means. And we don't, we don't, you know, we haven't known all these people for years to know exactly what they need. And so we go into these weekends so desperate for the Holy Spirit to empower us to listen and love and challenge and discern what's really going on and but but we we keep doing it because we just feel like well who else is going to do it right. and um we want to just be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us yeah nancy uh, how can people find out about this ministry where can they go to find out about the respite retreats just to my web they can go to my website nancyguthrie.com and then there's a place there that says respite retreats okay very good very good um obviously as as you were sharing about that. One of the key themes is that your your loss drove you more and more to the scriptures. And of course, the Lord's given you a, a ministry of writing, which um, you have written several very helpful things about suffering and, and having hope. But you've also written lots of other books and Bible studies. You, you've done a series of wonderful books on Jesus in the Old Testament, which I would encourage people to... Um, uh, to check out, but just just hearing you kind of unfold this as I've thought about just the number of books you've written, just on the study of the Scripture. Um, what, what I what I hear in your story is what drove you there to begin with was the struggle through the grief of of loss. Yes, and I and I think it was actually that search that led me to the place where I discovered biblical theology and seeing Christ in all the scriptures that then birthed the rest of it. Because, you know, when you're searching for the question, why did this happen? You know, there there are lots of things we we wanna, we quickly become very philosophical about that. But ultimately, the, the biggest answer, the most significant answer that changed my paradigm about it and my own search for answers was Genesis three. Ultimately, if I wanna know why, David and I both have a recessive gene trait so that whenever we have a child, that child would have a 25% chance of having a fatal syndrome. It's because the curse has infiltrated all of creation, even our genetic code. And so why did this happen? Uh, Because of the curse. Yeah. And... And so that kind of answers the question, why? So then where is the hope in that? Yeah. And the hope is also in Genesis 3. Exactly. That there is one who's going to come and he's going to suffer. So thank you for that. Right at the very beginning, to know my Savior is going to suffer and understand my suffering. His, his heel's going to be bruised. He's going to suffer. But he's also going to be victorious. Yeah. And he's going to defeat the one who brought all of this suffering into the world. And so if I'm looking for hope, then I, I trace it through the Bible. The hope 
that is presented in the scriptures. It's not a psychological hope. It's it's not a temporary hope. It's not just a mere coping with this life hope. You know, hope in the scriptures is centered in a person. Right. The person of Christ. And so throughout the scriptures, we see this hope. And and the whole point of it, we see the trajectory from Genesis 3 that he's going to come and he's going to deal with death. He came to defeat the devil. He he came to free those who were slaves to the fear of death. And so he's going to come and accomplish that. And so you and I are living in that period of time now when we're experiencing the first fruits of what he accomplished on the cross. Because we have the first fruits of that life that doesn't end. And yet we still live in bodies that die. And we still live in, in, in a world in which people we love die. But God is not finished. I mean, his redeeming plan for his world is that Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, death will be gone for good. I mean, that's the hope presented to us in Revelation 21, when there'll be no more death, no more curse, no more tears. And so people can, you know, look for coping mechanisms for grief. And, you know, you hear all of this focus on the steps of grief and all of that kind of thing. But, you know, I think the hope we have for grieving people, for all people, is found in a solid sense of understanding the biblical story and God's plan of redeeming all things through Christ. That's what helps us make sense of suffering. It's what's helped me make sense of suffering. And so then the books you're talking about in terms of the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament series that I've done, that five-book series, I suppose in many ways they have um, been birthed out of that. Wow. Well, I tell you what, Nancy, like I have this list of questions that I wanted to ask you, and they all seem so stupid now <laughs> after, <laughs> after listening to you. I could just listen to you all day. So um, I'm really sad that we have to wrap this up now because I almost want to go to the weekend retreat myself. <laughs> But yeah, I just want to thank you so much for sharing that with us. I, I think this can be a really helpful podcast for everyone. Yes. And um, those who have had to deal with loss in their family, friends and loved ones, and, and those who want to help others who have and, and for the church. So thank you so much for um, for letting us interview you today and letting us listen to you and um, hopefully be able to have you back on since you're an honorary guy now. Absolutely. Oh, terrific. Well, thank you for letting me go on and on, share about this heart's passion. It's great stuff. That, that we have, and, and, um, and I'm grateful for it. Thanks, Nancy. We sang every song that Javin knew. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing, 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 honey, fit Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to download the audio message, The Cross and Suffering, from Ligon Duncan. While you're there, don't forget to check out the Mortification of Spin blog for more from Amy, Todd, and Carl. Tune in next week to hear the team talk about uh, City Church in San Francisco, at one time considered one of the largest evangelical churches in uh, the San Francisco area. They have just released a letter saying that they're going to be an open and affirming church in regard to uh, homosexuality. 
join us for that discussion. And thanks for listening. Well, I think, you know, if, if Amy is the Yoko Ono of the reform world, I think <gasps> Nancy is the Janis Joplin. That's hey, that's I'm going to think of you so much better than yeah, me. Yeah, I think, I think... Um, Give me MGD yeah, and yeah, Yoko th- Ono. Yeah, I think that... I demand uh, better treatment. Yeah, Amy, Amy is far more likely to uh, succumb to addiction than I think Nancy is. So, <laughs> um, no, I just have different addictions. I'm getting the gun chucks out. <laughs> <laughs> I just, no, she's so healthy. Come on. <laughs> we know the darker side of her, Nancy. There's this, this clean yeah, public yeah. image. There is no dark side. <laughs> Thank you, um, Nancy. Nancy, thanks for the time. And thanks for your ministry. I mean-